If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. Rest in peace, Mark Lanigan. Guy's got a lot of responsibility, you know. Been able to smoke pot freely everywhere you go. It's a, it's a good thing that you handled it. I don't know if I could. I, I would probably die. Die happy though. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossip. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs the definitive live pearl jam podcast and this is the beginning of a four-week run standing right in the middle of 1992 the march 1992 that was 30 years ago think of where the band was back then they were just starting to ascend they were just starting to get to that level and then being in europe and things that were happening in the states at that time and what they would come back to and that'll be at the end of this little run here, the last episode that we do, what they come back to will be enormous. And they realize that, holy crap, we are a legit marketable band here. And I think for a lot of Europe that we're going to talk about, we're going to do a lot of Netherlands shows, and they're finding crowds that they love, and they're finding venues that they love playing in, and some that they actually hate playing in. And there's a lot of stories from this era that are very interesting that we'll get to, because it kind of gets them in the groove of touring a lot and kind of being on their own. So let's get to it. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. I just want to piggyback right off of what you are saying, that their hard work, you know, that year of touring for 1991 that you do, paid off and like it was starting to break and we talked about how 10 was kind of a slow burn like it didn't come out and didn't bust down the charts at number one didn't open at number one like versus in vitalogy did but it took about six months and here we are you know six or seven months later and things are starting to happen but they're kind of in this bubble over in europe where they're getting reports probably and you know like you're talking about you know radio was so important you've got to break on radio and it's just interesting because so many bands do that like thousands and thousands of bands have done that where you go on tour for a year and but it, you never break but it never happens the radio doesn't pick you up for whatever reason it happens and but for them like it happened and then it continued to keep going onwards and upwards and and here we are 30 years later still talking about it so yeah this was them like just about to break 
when they leave the States, right before they leave for going to Europe, I think their first show was on February 3rd right. in Southend, UK. When they're just about to leave, a live finally hits the Billboard charts after six months of the record being out, whatever it is. And they have to be thinking to themselves, like, okay, let's see where this takes us. Let's see where this goes. You know, obviously Nirvana had caught on and people are just like, okay, what else like Nirvana? Because there's nothing else like Nirvana out there. What else like Nirvana? And somebody probably said, well, we have this other Seattle band. They don't sound exactly like Nirvana, but they act kind of like Nirvana. <laughs> and okay. MTV too, you know, MTV oh, yeah. putting those live videos in rotation. Absolutely. And they had, I don't know when the Evenflow video debuted, but it was recorded by that point. We know yeah. it might have yeah. debuted in the middle of this tour. We don't know. But I think what's really interesting is while they're in Europe, the album gets released over in Europe. So they're almost doing their own promotion for the record while touring these places, but also people, it seems like more so than in the States, people kind of recognize them. They kind of know what's going on. They, I think they're more apt to figure this out. And one of the interesting, interesting, interesting things and, and reasons why they might know who, who Pearl Jam is, is that Hunger Strike was huge in Europe. Yeah, I think 10 had only been out for about a week in England. And that's a big market. And yeah, Hunger Strike, the Temple of Dog thing was because I think Soundgarden had had broken in Europe. You know, you go back to seeing hype and you just stick Seattle on stuff. And like right. that, the the journalist from Melody Maker who went over to Seattle and wrote the whole thing about the scene and like it got big there real quick. So yeah, then no surprise that they were tagging a lot of Hunger Strike on some of the songs on this tour. I mean, it was being asked for basically every yeah. single night. Like yep. you'll see that they have some of these set lists. If you look at some of these set lists, it'll be in parentheses, like Hunger Strike question mark. And obviously, they picked up on it when they, they were touring on Lollapalooza together, and they performed together, and then the end is history. But yeah, I think that they're ascending here. They're just, they're starting to see what their hard work is paying off for, and what they're doing for it. And this tour in the UK, some of it is like, ah, they're, they're having such great moments, and, and this show, obviously, Den Hog is going to be a great moment for sure. And most of this Holland stuff is very, very good. But there are some down moments, too. Their bus got jacked at knife point at one point in, I believe it was Manchester in the UK, where their bus driver, I think his name was Henrik, was sleeping on the bus and somebody came on the bus and, and, and threatened him. And yeah. like scary ass shit. Then... Of course, I think the thing that everybody knows from PJ20, the Switzerland show, where it was so small that they couldn't fit on the stage, like they were still playing in places like this because they didn't know that they were going to blow up to be this big. But what was that, like a 200-person venue, and they filled it, and they couldn't fit on the stage, so they're like, fuck it, we're going to play acoustic this whole way? That's the kind of stuff that, that they're still going through some of those growing pains and they don't understand yet that they need to be in front of big crowds because those crowds are, are, are going to fill up. Yep. I mean, you look at this plane for 300 people, plane for 500 people, plane for 600 people, plane for 450 people like that, that that's not going to hold for much longer after this. No. And when they return 
in June, you would see that, especially for Switzerland, the Zurich show, I believe, was uh, at least a thousand, maybe like twelve hundred person venue. That they didn't go back to that same place. I think they complained about the Cool Cat Club in Sweden and said mm-hmm. that that was a dump, and Jeff really hated the sound <laughs> yeah. of that place. Yeah, said he would never play there again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when they returned to go to Stockholm, they played at like an art museum outside. And they had a whole setup there, and I don't believe they had an opener that night. So, again, like interesting stories that are kind of developing from 1992 that would define who they were as a band and what they would become for later. And and it's just very interesting to go through. I think this little stretch of Holland shows they're in such good moods at all these shows. And and if you remember, I think the line that a lot of people probably remember from watching Pink Pop, Ed says. And whenever we talk about maybe moving away from Seattle, and this is the truth, we always say we'd probably move to Holland. They loved it there. And there's things that happened during this time that can be seen as cornerstones of the story that's going on. So this is out of all the Holland shows they played the night before, but I think this Den Haag show is the height of all of them. I believe they played five or six nights, if I'm not mistaken. And Den Haag has always been seen as the one. So because it was so popular on bootleg, because so many people remember it through collecting and acquiring, raising my hand, raising my hand right here. Yep. For sure. We have brought in our experts over at our brother podcast, which gets posted to all of our platforms as well, called Hallucinogenic Recipe with Brian Harwitz and Patrick Bogle. And those guys, we have brought them in to kind of cross promote here and get their take on what the collection aspect of getting this bootleg was. So I'm going to hand it over to them for a couple minutes and get to see another side of this conversation. Hey, this is Patrick and Brian from Hallucinogenic Recipe. Brian, how's it going? It's going great. Patrick, how's it going with you? It's going awesome. We're going to talk a little bit about the Den Haag bootleg. It's on the paper corn label. This was a boot that came out in 1992, the year that show was performed and recorded. Yeah, I had this on tape. Clearly, whoever sent it to me prepped me for the fact that it was on. It was a bootleg called Small Club. I have that much written down on the, the liner of the cassette. But yeah, and, and this is one of the first tapes that I had in my trading days. I'm, I'm going to guess this is about the first half dozen or so shows that I got probably early to mid-94, somewhere around there. Nice. I picked this up fairly close to when it was released. It came out, as I mentioned, on the Papercorn music label from Luxembourg, 1992. I got it in the fall of 92 in college. And it's a pretty simple release. It's not a glorified sort of packaging that we see from something like a No Fucking Messiah or the Kiss the Stone labels for the Atlanta 94 broadcast and things of that nature. It's just their promo for 10, the five guys, including Dave Cruz and Dave Aperziz isn't even on this one. It's black and white with a little bit of a color wash on across Pearl Jam Small Club on the front label. Simple back label, listing out all of the songs with each of the co-writers or contributors to each of the tracks. And then just the quick label of Papercore Music on the back, which was a short-lived labeled. I I found only about eight other releases aside from this one. So this is not 
a label that was out for a big period of time. Interesting that with the sound quality of this one, it came off of a soundboard feed and it didn't have any other competitors in the marketplace. Like of all of the other labels, there was not anybody that went back and released this one. So this was a solo release on this particular label and did not get cut by the aforementioned like Kiss the Stone or Oxygen or any of those other labels. And originally when this came out, it seemed to be complete at, as a 14 track show. But what we found out over time is a few pieces of the in-between banter of the encore and a fairly decent chunk of the last track of the show, I've got a feeling was cut out from the bootleg. And then in mm-hmm. 1999, 2000-ish, was when the full bootleg began to surface from tape traders and coming out through CDR trees. But let's talk about quickly, you know, in thinking about this one, what is sort of like the catch-all on the tracks here? What's that one track that really speaks volumes to what this boot was about? I mean, I, I feel like I have a couple answers here. My answer with almost any show from this era is Porch because I just I love the evolution of it. But I think to me and you and I talked about this a little bit the other day, I, I think the version of I've Got a Feeling and all the tags that are in there with like Say Hello to Heaven and Jane Says, and I think there's even a Hunger Strike part in there. I think that's not only the the jam of the show, but possibly the, that entire leg of like February and March. I, it's just It's just an epic moment in time for the band. No, for sure. I think I can still almost verbatim recite the pieces and movements of that jam and the little pieces that come in and out. And, you know, you talk about the tags, but just like the the motions that they go Mm -hmm. through to get to each of those tags. And then, as I mentioned, the exposure of the fact that the, the song itself had another four and a half minutes to it than was on the original bootleg. I think the original bootleg comes in at about 11 minutes or or just thereabouts. And then the ultimate final cuts that came out through t- tape trading, bring it up to almost 15, 15 and a half minutes. This is one of those shows, like the Zurich show that we've talked about, where, you know, having had this bootleg as like one of the early ones, and it sounds so good. And, and it like, it was yet another one of those shows that just kind of sucked me into the Pearl Jam world. The one last thing I would think about in terms of the tracking for the show is just a quick hit on they do the tease cover of Suggestion from Fugazi and weave it into the what is labeled on this bootleg as Saying No. It kind yep. of has, has over time been, been dubbed as Saying No in Den Haag. And then one other tidbit, if we're going to get into, is the unbelievable track miss listings that go on with these boots where they just completely change titles. This is one of the first versions of Drop the Leaves that we get from one of our famed Euro bootlegs. So get your gardening tools out. We got to cover up some stuff because the leaves have dropped and it is autumn. (laughs) Drop the Leaves, always one of my favorites. You can always always place it, right? Because bootlegs that came out later, obviously after verses would would have it correct and and anything after that point. So, you know, it it, it had to be an early, well, technically early 92 into 93 where they got it wrong. And then then it's right from here on out, right? Absolutely. Let's wrap this up and hear what the guys are going to have to say about this full show. And we'll get back together. And uh, we're going to be talking about another show from Holland very shortly. 
So thanks again, Brian and Patrick. That was great yeah, stuff yeah, and absolutely. insightful great. as always. And again, hallucinogenic recipe has been coming out on all of our platforms. It starts over on Patreon. We can talk about that a little later, but after a couple of weeks, we will put it out on the main platform and they have a couple things in the can right now. I believe in the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to get one out. And I think that one is going to be about box sets so don't quote me on that i, I believe okay. that there's some no fucking messiah in there but yeah it's going to be mainly about box sets what was your experience like you you said you had the bootleg so what do you remember from this and what do you remember from listening yeah, to it i had this on a tape and i remember it being very good quality as as one of the best quality ones you could get at the time and it's all about the saying no improv. I've listened to that thing probably a thousand times. Being a nascent Fugazi fan at the time, just kind of getting into them a little bit as well. Being like, oh yeah, like it's the it's Fugazi and it's also this and like just the groove of it was so different from everything they were doing. I remember writing on my little cassette like saying no in Den Haag and being like, oh, that's so cool. Like it's, and again, every time we kind of talk about those early days, it's like you were just starved for anything new. Like give me anything else. Like I want to hear everything. I want to hear if they play a song somewhere, I want to hear it. If there's a new song, like I cannot wait. If there's going to be some compilation coming out that's going to have a new song, I will be there the day that it comes out first in line. And so anything like this where you're getting like, alone you're getting saying no this improv you're getting leash unreleased at the time like oh just probably listen to that thing a thousand times at the time the community is still developing they haven't really built you know obviously the internet is is basically non-existent to so many people but you know you're you're hearing things from friends that know people that that have bootlegs or found stuff in record stores but this doesn't start being word of mouth kind of things until a little bit later in the 90s when you would get stuff like the Red Rock show and no Jeremy kind of stuff that people would start to know about it and then hunt this seems like it was a situation where this ended up in your lap and you were like, holy shit, what is this? And I think that that's, that's kind of cooler to discover it that way. Yeah. I can't remember even where I got it. Cause I was not buying like the bootleg CDs. Like that was way out of my league. I did not have $75 or whatever to go buy one of those bootleg CDs, but I must, maybe my cousin had it or something and I taped it off of him or someone at school had it. I got a cassette of it. Maybe it it got, it got passed to me somehow. You're one of the lucky ones, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I obviously was probably about five or six at the time. I had lots of different bootlegs, but I probably was just listening to like Sesame street, Sesame street, Mm -hmm. maybe a little Barney. Mm-hmm. You know, embarrassed to admit it, but cool. I think cool. every kid went through it. So at uh, least well, luckily I was, I was too old for that at the time. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it was just kind of everywhere. I think it's kind of a phase thing. But why don't we get away from that conversation and get into the conversation of this near perfect show, Den Hog? So they get on stage. There's 500 people in the crowd, allegedly. But Ed looks out and he says, there's an awful lot of people here. I hope you're here for the right reasons. The music. I don't know if that's a reference to anything. I don't know if he noticed that people were just trying to get there because it was cool kind of thing earlier in the tour. Not sure. But I don't know. it could just be like, just to let you guys know. But this is cool because it's, 
like I think Stone is playing a little bit of almost like what Untitled is to MFC. This is to Oceans. A little variation of the the Oceans intro under that. It's pretty cool. That's interesting. So Oceans is obviously the opener of the show. What's interesting about Oceans is that in 1992, how many songs do they have? They have like 15, 16 songs maybe, in total maybe. to work with. Yeah. And Oceans at this point. With the album being out and 1991 being a massive tour, and yes, we don't have every single show on record. There are going to be shows that Mm -hmm. we don't have any information for, and we may never get that information. We just have to live with that. There's this always kind of asterisk in mind with some of these songs that, like, were they actually played this amount of times or this amount of times? And Oceans is one where right now, as we sit from all the information that we have, it's been played 95 times, which for a song that has been out for 30 plus years is extremely low. Almost a third of those plays are from 1992. Right. This was the only the 13th performance of this song. Yeah. You know, again, might not be accurate because of what we have, but as far as we know, only 13 times. One, two, three. Hold on to the thread The currents will shift Like me told you No, something's left And we're all allowed To dream of the that this was just boy if you want a version that is just absolutely perfect like the album version sounds exactly what like what you would get from the album and it's not overdoing anything the percussion sounds good the guitar sounds good ed has a harmony to this it's a beautiful rendition very heartfelt powerful version and maybe outside of unplugged maybe this is one of the best from this era I've been on a kick on this lately. I'll say that I think this is probably the best Oceans ever. Dave really sounds good on it. He's kind of playing it up a little bit, which I think helps the song in this case. Yes. And it's almost like he took notes from Keith Moon on something like Love, Rain, or Me or something like from Quadrophenia, where it's, it's got that kind of feel to it. And it's very goes up and down. Like the drums on Love, Rain, or Me are amazing. Like obviously Keith Moon is one of the greatest of all time. And it's like Dave was like, listening to that and taking notes like on how to play oceans and ed's voice kind of cracks when it hits that thing but in like a really good way like you can tell that there's some emotion behind it and like there's a little bit of power behind this yeah i I really love this i think this is the best oceans i think i've ever heard 
yeah, again, I think a lot of people hold Unplugged with such a high standard, and of, of course they should. It's a great performance. But again, that in a way is a little bit sort of gimmicky because they're kind of set up to play it a different way, and it's unlike any other version of Oceans that would be performed. But as far as everything clicking and the song kind of having that original sound to it, and the video that you watch on YouTube starts off with clips from the Oceans music video of them jumping into the water and some performance stuff. And these shots are so slow. Everybody enjoying the weather and stuff. And just watching that brings that vibe, brings that just relaxed, chilled out, and makes it powerful. It makes it really heartfelt. I hold this to a very, very high standard. This is a very, very good one. And with Dave, I think what's most interesting thing to note, the Tom work that kind of happened in the transition between the verse to the chorus that he's working on there. I, I think that it's a perfect build. He's able to channel kind of holding back. And like you mentioned, like a little, bit, Keith re- Moon, a little bit restrained. Yeah. Right. Like Keith Moon, it, it, it was tough to restrain somebody like Keith Moon. The animal character from the Muppets is based off of That's Keith right. Moon. Yep. So if that's any telling of what kind of drummer Keith Moon was, that was because he was insane and he was loud and he made you feel like it was loud. You and were probably watching Animal on this day on the Muppets, so that's that's a good tie-in. That probably. I will probably be watching Animal on the Muppets tomorrow morning as well. Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. something that we do in this household. Yeah. But yeah, that, that little piece there, that little Tom buildup that sets the tone and uh, it, taking pieces from Quadrophenia, I think is, is very, very interesting. I think that Keith Moon and Dave A are definitely on that same kind of plane, on that same kind of oh, level. Yeah, Dave, A, Dave A worshipped at the altar of Keith Moon, for sure. Absolutely. We get into even flow. Ed calls Oceans a warm-up and signals to fire this one up with some thrashing around the stage. And they seem to be feeling great very early. Ed's very emotive, and it felt like this was the tour that kicked off him being comfortable enough in his own skin to just be himself. And they're not opening up for bands, so they're not trying to make as big of an impression as they were on the Chili Peppers tour, where they had to open for two bands that were circulating at the time, Smashing Pumpkins, Chili Peppers, or Nirvana Chili Peppers. And in here, like, they know that this is their show. They know that if they can be comfortable and relaxed with it, because this is their only shot with it. So people are there to see them, and they're going to see the real them. And I think that's what is all working here. Yeah, when you open for someone, you know, you have a limited amount of time and you have to make an impression. Like, you you feel like, we're going to show these people what we can do. You get a little bit of chip on your shoulder. But when you're you're the headliner, it's like, all right, people are coming to see us. We can, like, again, you're getting songs like Oceans and Black. A little bit later, you're getting a couple of B-sides, you know, that are coming up. So they feel like they can do that and you're not going to lose people because people are coming to see you. So, yeah, it's just a different mentality that you go into the show with. The most interesting thing on this version of Even Flow, and I think a lot of versions of 1992 have the same sort of flavor to them. You can say that about a lot of 1992 songs, even though it's good to go back to these performances kind of in their raw state here. But I think the one thing that kind of stuck with me with this version was that little build back from the bridge into the final chorus where Ed is singing the guitar harmony the same way that South America would do 15 years later. I thought that that was a really cool element and kind of foretelling in a weird sort of way, but just 
rockin' version. And look, we're going to be doing Evenflow each and every one of these weeks that we focus on 1992. So this was good. And I think every night it was going to be good. This one isn't like a crazy mic solo. It's a little bit more standard and a little bit more fluid. But yeah, it still has a very good groove to it. And Stone's still at the star of this one. Yeah. And on the mic afterwards says, It's unusual that tonight we get to see people in the back. I'm glad. Usually we can't see them and they're lost. And then he says, I got a very important message for you. I'm going to try my best. And people that know how to speak Dutch, reach out. Because I don't know what I'm saying. Ik, au foyau, uf maduma. Yeah, I heard it as ik, hafiau, ut faduma. Ut faduma. So not an, an F, a T. Yeah, I heard I heard oot. I think oot is a is a pretty standard Dutch thing. Right. But I, I could be wrong. We're gonna we're gonna get so many emails. Oh, and we should, because yeah. this is one thing that you wanna be wrong on so people can fix you. And next week when we do Utrecht, we'll be able to bring it up and be like, aha, this is what they were saying. So since we don't have much to work off with that, we're just gonna go into why go. And in why go begins a bit of a theme for the next couple songs and a theme for what was happening on this tour. We have some stage divers, we have some crowd surfers, and that Ed is looking at all of them and breaks performance anytime somebody comes on stage. We'll stop singing and just give them a stare down. We'll give them a nasty look and he hates this. There was one moment in this performance where he pushes somebody off the stage in kind of disgust. And even in the middle here, he shouts out, hey, look at the girl's head. You just smacked that girl's head. Apologize. Hey, look at that girl's head. You just smacked that girl's head. So I apologize. to go back to the London show that happened, I believe, on February 28th. And there's a moment where Ed's referencing all the stuff that's happening. He's saying, I'm seeing Boots kind of smashing some heads down there. And I think the line is, I know it's fun to be on top and look like Jesus Christ, but I swear every time you do it, I want to crucify you. So well, that's when he, he says there are people's heads not fucking cassava melons or something. Right. It's yeah, like a that's weird, weird choice to go to for melon right. if you're just planning. Yeah, you can only see so much of this every night before you just kind of lose it. And like, what the fuck, man? Like, they're seeing this every single night. He's got a front row seat to it. So, yeah, he's going to sympathize with the people that are just trying to watch a show and just trying to see music. And you only watch so much before you just break and like, just fucking stop. They're just tired of it. Well, I think part of what's interesting about this is that the two visual aspects of Pearl Jam that we have at the time, the two music videos that are out, basically encapsulate this behavior. There's stage diving, there's crowd surfing, and there's fucking more than stage diving off the fucking balcony. It was everywhere. You could not go to a show without someone doing it. People are seeing this and they're saying, oh shit, this is the culture that I want to be a part of, and this looks like a lot of fun, 
this well, it band got taken that's over playing... by jocks. It got you heard right. You started seeing the jock kids being like, "Oh, we can go jump on people and beat up people." Like, yeah, right. we'll do that. Right. I think that that was probably the start of what really yeah. pissed them off that it wasn't yep. actual fans, and maybe that goes to his quote in the beginning: "Hope you're here for the right reasons." Sort of deal. Could be. Could maybe. Be. But with Wygo having all that shit happen, you know, there's another person after Ed tells the guy to apologize. That person is taking their time doing it. He seems legitimately pissed, but goes into the performance pretty well. Like he uses that. He channels that. Makes for a pretty good performance of Wygo. Well, I think the solo is better in Wygo than it is on Evenflow. I think you might be right on that. Yeah, sure. But again, this is going to be a thing for the next couple songs, at least the next song that this is going to keep happening and he's not going to stand for it very long. So Jeremy is the next one. And once again, during the chorus, Ed gets distracted by another stage diver and more crowd surfing. shrieking on the vocals of this towards the end and and the entire band is getting to rock out behind him and there's a really good moment i think anytime in 1992 where they really get into that sped up beat a little bit and ed's doing a he 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 like that kind of stuff like that is a really intense signature moment but yet again ed now has to fend off people with his mic stand trying to uh-huh. push it into the crowd and tell them to get away and while this is happening everything is getting more and more intense as this is all developing yeah even at the beginning you can tell that he's because he starts repeating just jeremy can you hear me jeremy can you hear me jeremy yeah. can you hear me like it's kind of like this mantra like he's just psyching himself up for the song but yeah, like there's a stage diver at one point. He even just stops singing to just glare at this guy. And then, like you said, he takes the base of the mic stand and like threatens someone with it. Like, I'm going to hit you in the face with this if you don't stop. Right. And then he just like throws it down. One of the techs comes and like gets it later and like stands it back up. And it's like, all right, that's, that's your job. But yeah, just he's not having a good time here. It's to the point of like distracting him from the songs. It's very intense. That's why right after Jeremy, they're putting a kibosh to it all. Just a couple words. In my whole life, I never wanted to be a principal or a policeman or anything of authority. But um, in fact, all my life, I've been in a crowd like this. And uh, whenever I was back there and people flew up onto the stage and jumped back off, it already always looked so cool. But uh, then when you're up here, see all these people's heads getting smashed in by uh, big boots and cleats and stuff, and it's really fucking ridiculous. And it looks, and it looks like you agree, so uh, let's just police ourselves and have a good time. And from that point forward, it stopped. Everything stopped. Yeah. Interesting. I think that people after that were probably just able to enjoy the show for the music and enjoy the energy instead of it being a mosh fest. A, well, like, you know? they, but they, they got a talking to from their hero. Like, uh, yeah, right. Oh, the guy that we like told us not to do this. So like, don't piss him off. 
Right, or else he's going to walk off stage, yeah, or yeah. they're not going to play here anymore. They'll never come back to the Netherlands again. Yeah, for sure. He put a little bit of the fear of God into him, but that conversation will come back in a little while. That I, I just have questions about the whole entire ordeal, and <laughs> well, we'll get to it when we get to it. But deep is the next song. I thought that probably the highlight from this was Stone's guitar is just very funky in the beginning more funky than usual versions of, of Deep. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Feeling quite superior in Den Hog. It's a oh, very yeah, I remember that for sure. It's a very classic 1992 version of this and it looks like Ed is not worrying about the divers anymore so the song can go pretty straightforward. There was no like it going and spinning into madness or anything like that. There's none of that. I think it was pretty straightforward performance of Deep for this era. Oh, I really like when everyone drops out and it's just Ed and the drums, and he's just growling, like getting really, really, no pun intended, deep with his voice there and, and going for it. Yeah, it sounds really good. Ed talks to the crowd again and says, you guys have a lot of responsibility being able to smoke pot freely anywhere you go. It's a good thing that you handle it. I don't know if I could. I would probably die. Die happy, though. Let's have fun. Boy, that's riveting stuff there. Uh, Alive is the next one. It's a fun performance. Ed lifts the mic stand and turns it around and lets people sing into the mic. You can actually hear the crowd during that. Yeah, really good crowd reaction here. Mike's solo has a ton of electricity in this. This is probably the mic moment from the night. One of the best Alive solos of the 90s, I would say. all the bullshit that was happening a few songs ago it feels like the band has the ability to feel more loose up there and not have to be distracted a little bit yeah you see them it's the atmosphere starting to loosen up a little bit like i said like because when ed gets on that when he's upset then the rest of the band like it gets tense like he kind of is the barometer for how the band is it's like, but when he relaxes then you see stone goes over and rocks out with jeff a little bit then he kind of locks in with ed and like they have a little moment and you see the like things are starting to kind of ease up a little bit and they're they're starting to get into the show. I don't know if you noticed this after a live, but my ear caught it and it sounded like there was a noodling of yellow lead better. I don't know if that was legit lead better or if it was just a noodle of something, but we'll, we'll play it and the people can piece. decide. Little little piece kind of sounded a little bit like lead better. This is the part of the show where Ed says, we canceled tomorrow night's show because I knew I'd sing with everything I've got tonight. 
beautiful decision. And I think we talked about this off recording and I was sort of speculating that, you know, maybe because this is the sixth show in a row, if they had played straight through, they would have played 10 shows in a row. And I was kind of wondering aloud if maybe they wanted a day off to just sort of intake the area and relax a little bit. But you seem to think that when a band goes out on tour, they want to get the most out of it as possible. Yeah, I think I think when if you have the show, you want to play the show. They had plenty of time during the day. Like, you know, you got 22 hours off. So they, they had plenty of time, I think, to go walk around and do whatever. I think, yeah, you never you never want to cancel a show if you don't have to. That makes sense. But I think from what we know is that on the next day after this is that Ed gets his tattoo on his calf. The it's like an X sort of, it looks almost like a candy cane. I, I am not sure what it is. I'm getting, yeah, I, don't, can, I, I, I don't know. People can email us, but this has been a story. And, and next week on the Utrecht episode, it'll come up because he brings it up. And there's a moment where he's like, no, no, I, 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 I can't crowd surf because my leg's going to hurt kind of deal. Like it's going to be sore. Was that his yeah. first one or is that no? I don't, think I don't the have the one. answer to it. I don't have the answer to that, but yeah. I think it's yeah. the one that everybody knows. So. Yeah. Hmm. Black is the next one. The video is very fuzzy, but I feel like you can tell that Dave has a SIG hanging from his mouth during this. <laughs> it's very classic. Yeah, yeah. Very classic Dave A kind of thing. But I just real quick, because there was no definitive moment of this, but the recording and the way that the drums sound on this whole entire bootleg, just so crisp. Every hit, every snare hit, every tom hit, every cymbal smash, like everything just sounds really crisp. And that's what makes, I think the drums especially, is what makes this one of the best recordings of this era. Think about Black Tooth, Jeff and Stone just killing those background vocals. Oh, like, vocals just perfect, like going up and down and like hitting the melody like perfectly. And like, oh, it's, it's like they were singing in a choir, like yeah. that kind of like... Yeah, sign those guys up for the great choirs of all time. Like, yeah, this is up there. Very, very good. And then it kind of waits in there, but there's a really good We Belong Together at the end, too, kind of hinting at what would come as front plug a couple weeks later. Yeah, for sure. There are a lot of highlights from this version. I'll always bring up that when Ed kind of goes a little bit higher and kind of enhances the Some Kids at Play line. And that's when the song starts to get intense. And this these versions start to kind of feel that way. And they didn't play it a lot in 91. I think Black was something that Ed, at least, was hesitant to do. And then after a while, kind of saw that, all right, people react to this. And I could also use it as an outlet a little bit to express my feelings on it. And it feels like it took over. It, it took over at the time. So, yeah, I thought Ed's vocals were just about perfect over the backing vocals as well. I think everything complemented each other. But Mike's wailing kind of bluesy solo a little bit was very good. It was a good version of Black, for sure. Yeah. And you look, too, like we talked about a lot of the shows in 1991 where they weren't playing Black, and a lot of the, like, the Lollapalooza shows from 92 where they weren't playing Black. But here, going looking at live footsteps here, there's 28 shows on this European tour. They did Black 26 times. Yeah. Like, that's more than even flow, more than porch, more than once. This was starting to become a thing because, like, again, they're headlining shows. You have more than 30 minutes. You don't have to just blast people out. So this is the time when Black kind of becomes a highlight of the set, and it's right here in the middle. It's interesting you say that because these sets are now starting to have balance when they're the main highlight of shows. He's learning how to do it. He's learning how to 
to craft a set list. Right. You'll look at a lot of these 1992 shows and, you know, they'll have the release or the oceans or the wash opener, and then it'll go into even flow, and then it'll go into a once or a why go or Jeremy. And like, they're very, very similar. A live right smack in the middle, black right smack in the middle, close the set with porch encore with usually garden or leash or both and then a cover to end it and i feel like that's the recipe for just about every show from this little february to march run here yeah all right so this is a big moment in this set we talked about it a little bit before ed mentions i don't think we've played this next song live yet oh wait we have on record we have this as being played at Roseland Ballroom on November 16th. We do not have any footage from this performance from that night. The, I think it was an incomplete bootleg, but we know for some reason there it has been confirmed that they did it that night, which is interesting because if you go through the four instances where they did saying no, this is the only one that we have an actual recording of. It leads to some conversations. I want I want to hear it first. I want to give it to you guys first, and we'll get into some conversations here. is developed from you mentioned fugazi before the suggestion tag to me it kind of seems like the song was sort of based around what the suggestion premise was anti-rape and pro-women and all that kind of stuff and it felt like he was just building off of that last take of suggestion where they do that whole entire you know she uh, she don't want to repeat it, like all that kind of stuff. 
Yes, and they, they've been doing suggestion a lot. Like, that goes back to, to 91, so it makes sense that they would have gone off of that and tried to build something off of that. is it's a whole other like if people haven't heard the full Fugazi version of it like Ed only takes a little bit of it and just kind of riffs off that that's not the song right yeah he's there's there's a whole other part to it I can see him thinking like oh I can take this and turn it into something kind of like an homage to one of his favorite bands and just god listen to this a thousand times it's like Dave just doing those little clicks and then Ed just kind of starts riffing off of it and it kicks in. It just builds and the the coolest thing about it, it just keeps getting more and more, just keeps building, keeps getting better and better and bigger and bigger. The moment when the drums kick in is, oh, it's just so good. And like we were talking about, you know, comparing this to kind of improvs of the time. There were a few that something like Hard to Imagine turned into something a couple of years later out of my mind would get released on a b-side and then come back in 2018 but this hasn't it got teased kind of twice in 91 this is the kind of the definitive one and then they played it in 93 in colorado a show that we don't have a recording of as like an intro to why go which again makes a lot of sense you know suggestion and why go were, were played a lot together so i think there's definitely like a connection there but there's not enough. We can't flush it out enough to say, okay, Ed was trying to do something. This was a going to be a full song at some point. But for whatever reason, they abandoned it. And they still were doing Suggestion in Summer 92. So for whatever reason, this just didn't stick. It's just a very strange, unique performance that they almost never went back to. What's interesting, and, and I think you mentioned before, like writing saying no in Den Hog was so satisfying. That's because yeah. a- after the song, Ed says, We'll I have to call it saying no in Dead Hog. And from what I wonder with this performance, and maybe not the why we don't have the other performances, because there might be a whole different other story on that, but this is the one that has stuck around. And sometimes I think that the band likes to keep certain moments for certain shows and have that to be the connecting factor to a certain show. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case here, if they thought like, okay, that was really strong from this night. Let's keep that as a Den Hog thing because we called the song saying no in Den Hog. And if we turn it to saying no in uh, like Cleveland or saying no in Alpine Valley, Mm -hmm. wherever, then it kind of changes the song. And I think they might have wanted to keep it part of the Den Hog ideal. Yeah, and like and we have the versus demos. We have those that recording session information. They never attempted no. this in the studio. So yeah, I think you're right. 
The next song, and this is considered to be our little rare section of the time, the next song is Alone. In a bandit, never woke up alone ever before. And this woman, long as he can remember, tries to forget, but he can't, he can't. Out of bed and he dreams in a bandit, standing naked and apologizing. He reaches for her and the water turns to red hot, woken up to be burned. It was extremely rarely played compared to everything else that was on 10, but in this little European stretch, it sort of came back. It came back a little bit. They had a couple nights where they kind of played it in a row, and they were like, all right, let's play it, let's feel it. And then after next week's Utrecht show that we're going to do the next night, they wouldn't play it at all until the New Year's Eve show later that year. So the whole time from some of those U.S. dates, late March and early April, to the June dates that they would do again in Europe, and then all of Lollapalooza, they ignored it. And I don't know if they weren't feeling it or what, but they decided to bring it back at a show that was at least they were getting a lot of eyeballs on. I wonder why, and I wonder why that this was always kind of considered sort of a bottom rung of Pearl Jam songs, because I don't think it should be, but I I also kind of agree that I don't think it fit on 10, if you know Mm. what I mean. Yeah, I think it's just too similar to some of the things. They they already had other songs that do the same thing that that alone does, and it was how redundant do you kind of want to be, and I don't mean to say that the song is redundant, but when you're making an album, it needs to have a flow, and like if you're going back to certain things, it might just not have been a place for it, but... You know, for a song that was was debuted at the off-ramp, for this to be a year and a half later and only been played 15 times definitely tells you something. But for the performance itself, like, I said that Oceans was my favorite Oceans ever, maybe the best ever. This alone might be the best one as well. Really? The groove that Stone has just from the very beginning is amazing. Ed sounds awesome on it. Ed's kind of leaning on Stone a little bit. He kind of... Oh, goes over funny. and kind of like playing with it like gives him a wedgie or something and stone has to like yeah that yeah, sounds like the, the, thing. the comment afterwards that stone yeah. had was you got to pull the pants out of my ass now <laughs> and, and snarkly says ask somebody up front mm-hmm. now that that's their job yeah right but and there's mike has a great moment ed even gives gives him a little encouragement like go mike the next song is Once. This is pretty standard performance. Mike has another blistering solo in this, but the thing that really stood out was that something was happening with the mic where every time that Ed sang Once, the word Once, it sounded like there was an echo on the mic that was reverberating. And I'm mm. wondering what they did to make it sound like that. Yeah, it's probably just reverb. Probably whoever was running the sound, like... Had it turned it up a little bit and turned it down. Had the reverb too loud. Yeah, that's just a 
that's a sound sound man thing. This is a good version. I think Ed thrashes a lot during this version. It's fun to hear. It's good performance. I think he falls that, down at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I, and it's kind of a precursor to some insane stuff that's about to come in a couple minutes. Oh, but yeah. once in this era, I think once kind of belongs as part of like 1992 and i know you mentioned a lot like when the crowd gets to respond to it then that that that's kind of where it breaks through but i like the earlier versions where it still feels raw it still feels like it has the power behind it you know what i mean yeah yeah i, I just i like the 2010 version better i like what it's become more than what it was it just it it's got that kind of butt rock aerosmith feel to it which i don't like i like that it's going to become a little more anthemic a little more of a, a crowd-based moment it'd be interesting to do an evolution on that one we always kind of forget about that when we, yeah. we talk about songs but that that'd be an interesting one well we got more years to do okay. evolution stuff right. and more time so we'll see we'll see if it's in our future all right during this little part here stone and mike are playing together what feels like an homage to rush Ed mentions, he, he says there's a request for him to come on and sing. And somebody then said, I think it was Jeff that says, you can't sing for shit. Ed responds to that saying, if you say please and maybe, but you make me feel cheap. Then Stone gets on and says, actually, uh, me and Mike were working out a Queen song earlier tonight. And I, maybe we could, oh, 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 I better start this time. B.L.'s above, how's it dope for? For me! For me, for me! That's yeah. something that yeah. happened. Yeah. But memorable moment from this show. Ed says, this is the last song and I don't want to leave. One, two, three, four, Porch. This is a very 1992 version of Porch where you have the song that's happening in the background and everything is being fixated on what the hell is Ed doing now. I believe Ed is throwing his microphone wire to the rafters, a la mm-hmm. what he would do in a more dangerous situation and drop in the park and he's climbing up the wire it's a strong ass wire for that to, to, to oh, do yeah. that oh yeah and he starts doing these these tricks he starts going upside down he's got his legs locked onto the lighting rig and it looks dangerous as hell he's dangling and he's kind of doing some push-up kind of things but it can be evil Knievel that's why he has the evil Knievel jacket that he puts on sometimes and I think it goes back to to this sort of stuff that he's always wanted to face danger essentially and he kind of got a high off of it yeah I think he you know talks about it was just about seeing how far they can push it what can we do to make this memorable he gets up there and you know, he kind of mentioned everything and then he just dives down and then it's just shenanigans ensue and he even like says like what the fuck am I doing right. <laughs> like, <laughs> questioning his choices there but for the music I thought when they're first getting into that jam where he's going to do that I thought Jeff sounded really good like it's a true sign of a really good boot like when you can hear the bass and like yeah, not only just hear the bass but hear individual notes on the bass and hear what the bass is doing and yeah, Jeff sounded really good on this. It, it felt like he was, you know, it was kind of a precursor to some of these versions where he's really pushing and really leading the line on that one. But yeah, this it's just, you know, hijinks. I think Ed's just rolling around. I think there's a, one of the techs is involved at some point. Yeah, it's yeah just, I wasn't it's sure if that was Eric Johnson or not. Yeah, could have been. I think he was. he's more the tour manager. I think, well, the 
George, one of the the guitar techs. It might, uh, might have been even the same guy that ran out and got the mic stand. There's a Smitty. Um, there's a Scully. Yeah, yeah. One of those guys. One of, one of those guys, maybe. Yeah. What I'm going to bring back into a conversation that we had 10, 20 minutes ago, whatever it was, that during when he's kind of getting on the crowd for, you know, smashing heads in and, and, and stuff like that, he then goes... And he dives into the crowd like that. Like, I'm not sure. Is that counterproductive? You know, like, yeah, it's is like he just doing it because he can. Yeah, you can't have it both ways, man. Like, you, you can't, you can't hold that with one hand and then hold the other hand behind you. You can't, like, you can't yeah. have it both ways. You've gotta, you gotta, you gotta walk the walk. So, a little bit hypocritical, maybe, being that they were one of the ones who were like making it look so cool and yeah. like putting it in their videos. Yeah, there's. There's a little bit to that, and I think you know once they realized that, that 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 ended very quickly. I think. Yeah, and while unnamed tech that was out there kind of lifts Ed by the back and spins Ed around a bunch of times, and it's just chaos going on at the end yeah. of the song. Like, what else? You know, he's on top of the crowd. He d- he kind of does like on top of the crowd, sort of like what he does now, singing the final chorus of this, and that's pretty fitting for what Porch was in 1992. All that stuff you can say that about almost every night of what porch would happen back then so we are at the encore now let's pause for station identification talk a little bit about our patreon talk a little bit about what's coming next and talk a little about livebeforelegs.com because there's been some stuff going on over there too let's start with the patreon stuff we have two people to thank this week One of them is Jason Weiss. Thank you for becoming a patron, Jason. And the other one is Taylor Griffin. And Taylor actually wrote in on our website. We did a little bit of tribute to Sully that we talked about the last couple weeks after Sully's passing. uh, You know, his friends were able to kind of rally together and, you know, get Smile to be. Right. It really is. And and I, I wanted to. In some way, I, I didn't know Sully. I, I had seen him around. I had seen him talk to people that I was close with, like Andrew and, and some other people. But I didn't know him, and I wasn't really in that circle. But I, I just thought it would be nice to make something in his memory, to, to build something in his memory that we can kind of keep adding on to over the years. And and Taylor, who had been a friend and a Pearl Jam go-to right from the very beginning of, of Sean's show history in Chicago in 94, Taylor wrote in, told, told that story and told about other stories of them seeing Pearl Jam together. And it was Sean's birthday last Friday. So, you know, a lot of emotions going on so shortly after his passing. But, you know, I, I just want to thank everybody that did contribute and everybody that's planning to contribute later on. Because I, I feel like even a, in a year from now, people will want to look back at this and they'll want to get to see all the memories and the stories being told. And and I think they, they deserve to honor their friend that way. So, again, for other people that are listening that maybe knew Sean that want to tell a story about him or just want to memorialize him somehow. This is always open. We're never going to stop taking submissions for this. It could be in a month. It can be in a week. It could be in a year, right in at any time, whenever it feels comfortable for you, we'll put it out there and we'll, we'll use it for the memorial, but we're really happy that to see that, that Taylor shared a story. So thank you, Taylor. And then Taylor ended up joining on our Patreon too, which, which yeah, was thanks, really guys. cool. So thanks Taylor and Jason. Definitely. 
this week, we can now officially say that Crazy Mary is ready to go. I know you guys have been waiting for it. It's it's a big episode. Let's just put it that way. It's like it it's might gonna be, be it's gonna be worth the wait though, you guys. I think it's gonna be longer than this episode easily. Could be. Could be. I think it might be longer than our average just show covering episodes because there's so much going on. You gotta play long clips of of duels and and boom going off and Ed singing some lines and stuff like that and some stories in there. Yeah, uh, there's just a lot to talk about, but that's going to be over at Patreon, whatever it does come. I think that now is the time to hop on board with this. If you want the content, if you want more evolution episodes that are going to come and hopefully come at a more steadily pace this year, Patreon's the place to get all this stuff. And the way that you want to do it is go to patreon.com slash live on four legs or go to our website live on four legs.com sign up for patreon you'll see buttons on every single page that said become a patron all you gotta do is click on it sign up there you never actually have to go to the patreon if you don't want to or you can download the app i think the app is helpful when you want to interact with us because we're doing a couple polls right now basically trying to get some sourcing for an episode that's going to happen in april where there are shows from every big tour year that are going to be voted on and then at the end we'll kind of do a big vote for all those shows kind of against each other so we'll set it up you know we'll do a show in april but that stuff is is on patreon it's good to communicate and connect through through that way and we're doing all this stuff on on facebook and twitter as well if if you want to get in on it but look the only place that you're going to get crazy mary evolution is through patreon you want to be there once again it could be a dollar a month. It could be $5 a month. It could be $10 a month. Any of it. We just want to get the content out, you guys. We want you guys to be able to enjoy this stuff and maybe even learn a little bit. Maybe. And $10 a year, even if you know you get the discount if you sign up for the year. Like That's right. That's it. But not only that, but usually we don't offer the request to the bonus tier. But if you sure. do sign up for the full year, and if you are a bonus leg member and you've been a member for a full year, you do you are granted the request. So you will get an episode at some point. It it might at this point a lot of 2022 is booked already, but we are hoping to get as much out to the people as humanly possible. So definitely. And another thing I wanted to point out, you know, live on fourlegs.com. I went back and did another making of a moment for last week, Freeze Troy. I'm gonna try to be doing that every week. So maybe people can guess as to what I'm gonna be writing about this week for Den Hog. Probably not a surprise. I'm gonna kind of take my three moments and do a little bit of a deep dive and talk about why they were the great moments that they were. So go ahead and check that out. It's kind of a little addendum to the podcast. So it should be fun. I'm looking forward to doing that for this one definitely. And you'll give a little preview for the next episode, right? Yeah, yeah. A little Easter egg for the for you guys out there. There's a lot of stuff coming on the website very soon. We just did some YouTube video recordings for Tier List, and they're going to go up on YouTube very soon. It'll be featured on the website. We'll put it up. We'll bet it. And we have a really good piece that we're working on right now that we think that you guys are going to like that we hope is going to get out in the next two weeks or so. But it's a story that we've been working on. We want to diligently work on. We want to get it right. So when it's time to reveal it, we'll reveal it. But that will, again, we want this to be a destination spot where every day people can go on and see something new, check out something that they haven't checked out before. So you'll hear from us when that's ready to go. So I think we're ready to get back into the show. It only has three songs left, believe it or not, but one basically tanks up the length of the show. 
So back to the rock, you know, Dave comes out and there's a cloud of smoke on top of him. And it was tough to tell, but it looked like he passed the joint into the crowd. Right. It's, it's real, it's real chill on stage right at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's like college dorm room vibes on stage here. It's like Ed went back there and he's like, shit, I got banged up pretty bad from jumping to that crowd. I, I need something to get the edge yeah. off. Yeah. But Ed says, Dave, you're such a bad influence, man. Personally, I would never smoke that shit. It's not like I'm straight edge or anything, but I just like life. Oh, the, the straight edge references. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was that was a thing back then, too. It was. And wasn't that like part of Fugazi's lifestyle? Uh, minor threat going back, going back to minor threat. Yeah. He mentions that there's a girl named Jane and a girl named Ruth. They saw every show in London, then took a train here to Holland to see us again. So this is for them called garden of stone. The same kind of echo that was on once is kind of back for garden. And it feels Mm. like it's just a thing straight out of 1992 that never left, you know? The great thing about this too is he changes the lyric to you know, you'll be in London and I'll go and like he was he was singing to them like that's for those those two girls, like they have that. Yeah. So that that's awesome. Yep. And I hope that Jane and Ruth, wherever they are today, have yeah. stuck around and followed them around because that would be get to get the detective agency and find them. <laughs> I mean, you gotta you gotta hope that like within somewhere get, get, our, get our get our UK people on that one. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure if if they're still part of the community, I'm sure that they're out there and somebody knows them. Especially especially the Europeans kind of all stick together with that. So, mm. um, by the way, everybody's shirtless now except for Ed and Stone. That's you know a very 1992 yeah. thing yeah. as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I'm sure it's sweating yeah. balls out yeah. there. Yeah. Good version though. Mike's got a very like wild bluesy thing Ooh. going on over yeah. the chorus. That, that yeah. the band's just totally vibing off of that. He's, he's into it. It might be the smoke. It might be just the jams, but it's, it's a good feel out there. Things are feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty loose. The next song Ed tees up as I don't want to play one more slow song tonight. If you haven't heard this, which they haven't, most likely, I'll teach you the chorus. It's drop the leash, drop the leash. Get out of my fucking face. Again, changing some of the lyrics here to fit the hometown kind of scenario. Will myself to find home, a home in Holland. There's another good backing vocal moment in this, too. The thing that I got out of this the most is it really seems that Jeff, out of everybody, is really, really into this. And it always felt like Jeff was really, really into this song. Yeah. Yeah. And then- just the energy like you can tell they're they're young and like they don't play this song with the same energy even a couple of years later right after versus comes out you would almost get the end of leash which is weirdly enough because this is really more of a 10 era song kind of what they were going for then like the whole fuck authority kind of deal and you can't tell me what to do and 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 wanting to to just sort of be free and I felt like that mentality Teen once Teen X, right. And once Versus kind of hit, there's some transition where there was still a little bit of Teen Angst. There was definitely angst somewhere, but it felt like it was through different means. It felt like the angst was more towards like angst at the media, angst oh, yeah. at life sure. in general. If you're and, maturing. Right. So after that, as good version of Leash. After that, Ed says, let's just say, for instance, 
that would get really mad one day and tell the record company to fuck off. And, and uh, they won't pay for our hotels anymore. Next time we come, can we stay at somebody's house or something? Because there's a record company guy here tonight. I just want to tell him, you know, I want to show him that we have some leverage here. We could do it without him if we had to. <laughs> you know I don't mean that. I love this beat so much. Yeah, this is one that I could have recited from memory for many, many years. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean... And we, uh, we know yeah. who it is, too. He gets a mentioned. Michael Goldstone, and, right? I got a feeling, yep. Yeah. yeah. I know that name. Is that... Yeah, it's a is Sony, that just their A&R guy? Sony yeah. guy, right, right, yeah. right. And there's another, Michelle was another one. Michelle Anthony? Yes, Michelle Anthony, yes. Yeah. yeah. I feel like they get connected together all the time when talking yeah. about record label executives and Pearl Jam's rise or whatever. But this is going to end your night, and it's going to be a long one. It's basically the only full cover that they had done at the time. I've got a feeling. Only a week after this was when they started to introduce Rockin' Free World. Believe it or not. It was yeah, in... Yeah. Uh, I think it was in Germany. I think that they started doing Rockin' in the Free World because they, they kept talking about Neil's performance on Saturday Night Live and how good That's that right. was. And they That's wanted right. to mirror that and they wanted and they, to be that, essentially. And they started doing Baba over the summer in Lollapalooza. Right, right. Yeah. Keep, keep this quote in mind. Neil fucking young, a.k.a. God. Just keep that instilled in your memory for a couple weeks. Just saying. <laughs> Everyone had a good year. We all saw Amsterdam. We got Michael Goldstone. Everyone had a good time. Everyone made a movie. Jeff Men had one line, no two. Everybody misses Andy. We'll be seeing him in no time. This is essentially the line every single night from I've Got a Feeling. The whole yeah. Jeff yeah. had one line, two lines, they, everybody misses Andy. They, they had been doing this for a long time. Yeah, it was recorded for 10. It was, it was on the Japanese version of 10. And then hey, we're going to go off into some interesting things here. Some tags and some tags that are oh. mentioned. But buckle this. up. Here we go. Some tags that are not. Some tags that maybe I'm hearing stuff that maybe nobody else is hearing. I'm going to bring it up in just a sec. But after all this, he does some say hello to heaven lyrics. So. Back the temple thing that we talked about. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's got to get the crowd a little bit of pop because, again, that record has been out for a little while longer than 10 has. So people have kind of heard it and they've they've gotten familiar with it. So, yeah, that's not going to be the only Temple of the Dog reference in this, though. say hello to heaven i noticed there's a drum part in here what did you think the drum that little drum part sounded oh, like you, you, yeah you're you're not getting that past me that's dirty frank my friend or is it freaky styling it's dirty frank they're they're uh, they have this they have, both songs have that doesn't join in so we don't know it's it's both it can be it's, it's the pandora's box okay. like we don't know but because he didn't sing it we don't know so it's both 
It can be. It's the, tr- it's the drums and the guitar. That's that's all it is. There's just a forever jam after this. It, like 15 minute oh, version. How much time like, you guys got? We can just hold on I mean, to your hats. You could probably start playing it when we first started talking about it, and then it'll still be playing when after the show ends. And we can oh yeah. The yeah, yeah, that'll that'll definitely be the end of the show for sure. A little like <laughs> Easter egg, like an eight minute Easter egg, I suppose. But hey, just keep going. They just keep going on and on, and then uh, the James another thing I really like too. Like, again, no, we're not up to that yet. Okay, we're, we're getting we're at we're at hunger strike. Okay, he does the I don't mind stealing bread. He does that line over and over again. Just kind of does that over and over. Again, a lot of people's connection to Pearl Jam is through right. Temple of the Dog. And then he does the Jane Says line. to Jane's Addiction a lot of people mm-hmm. like you know you think Jane's Addiction not a Seattle band but one of the big big influences on early Pearl Jam absolutely after that it's like they never want to leave stage it's just getting ridiculous and then you see Jeff he's given up his instrument and he's like look up. I'm done I'm out. yeah right and and Jeff will take some drumsticks he'll go play with Dave for a little bit but you get this big hulking guy with like a flannel on and I think he's wearing like a a ski cap or something like that. He gives the bass over to Ed's brother Jason who starts out by rocking out a little bit with Stone and uh, can you you call it rocking out? Can you you call it rocking out? 
No, he he's, can't because Jason doesn't know how to play bass. He's not a bass player. No, he is. He is completely lost. I think they he's, just he's, gave he's him. like he's he's on the watch me for the changes thing. He's like staring at fretboards, like trying to follow. Mike comes over and tries to help him at one point. Like right, just he, he's like just do what my hands do, man. We'll get it. And he gets it eventually. He he gets to it, but they have to kind of adjust to him. Like he's. I think they, the song like changes keys two or three times because he's he's all over the place on that fretboard. Right. I mean, at this point, just pull everything out of the kitchen sink, you know? Yeah. He, yeah. But Ed shouts out. He's, he exclaims, that's my little brother. And, you know, he's oh, a little shy. Iconic line. Like, how many times did I listen to that? Like, one of the things from the show that, that people remember. I think I, you know, teased it on the, in the Facebook group the other night. Like, yeah, guess what show this is? Like, everybody knows. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. He's a little shy, but Jeff pushes him into the middle. Yeah. And I think Ed shows him where to play first. Mm-hmm. And then Mike. Yeah, Ed's, Ed picks shows up the guitar. Him. It's playing guitar. That's a really interesting point. This might be one of the earliest instances where we see Ed play guitar at a Pearl Jam show. Could be. Yeah. And we had talked about, I believe there was one when they did, I think it was in Stockholm later in 92, the June run, that Ed came out and did Driven to Tears and Throw Your Arms Around Me. And yep. we, yep. we had thought that that originally was the first instance and full song. Yeah, probably. But he's picking it up here and he, he's playing, you know. It's, and he's doing like he's doing the Save It for Later Better Man Windmills. He's already doing the Pete Townsend. Oh, God, yeah. Pete Townsend Windmills. Yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, so good. It's just a perfect end cap of this night. And then Jason puts Ed up on his shoulders and kind of says, unsurprisingly, that was the first time me and my little brother ever played. That's the first time me and my little brother ever played. Like, I can immediately give you the cadence of it. Like, just right. it burned in my memory. The funny thing, too, is like watching this, like, Stone just gives up at some point. He <laughs> just puts it down, like, I'm out, guys. I'll see you guys in the bus. He just, he just checks out completely. 15 minutes goes by and everything ends and again Ed commented that it was the first time he and his little brother ever played but takes out a Polaroid takes a few shots of the crowd and says thanks we'll never forget this and that's how you leave off this night we are in the top three territory here your week to go first so give it to us all right there's really four that I want to pick. I'm going to have to figure out which three to do. I'm going to have to leave off one that I really like. My number three is going to be Alone. Talked about it. I think one of the very best early performances of Alone, which means it's one of the very best performances of Alone ever. My number two is Oceans. We talked about that at the beginning. I think the best Oceans of all time. And my number one is is Say and No in Den Haag. I mean, that. This is just one of the iconic performances of this era. And just for, for all the reasons that we talked about, I just from the, the reason from the bootleg, this is the one that got circulated. And I listened to this thing a thousand times, and it's just burned in my brain. When it came on watching the show, it was just like an old friend saying hi. That That's my number one, hands down. I got a feeling like, yes, hard to leave that off top three moments. Ed playing with his little brother, great moment. He's They're so excited. It's up there, but th- those three are the three. Well, I'm glad you didn't because I'm going to, and that's oh, yeah. going to be my number three. 
I don't think I have to really explain myself on that. I think it kind of speaks for itself. It's the party atmosphere that they're creating for the night, and they're doing a song for 15 minutes long, and they never jammed for that long. And, and there's so much going on with lyric changes, with his brother coming out, everything. Like, there's just so much going on, and it's it's classic. It's classic, and this is the kind of performance that gets talked about a lot, you know, even in kind of like the what happened in 1992 sort of things. Like, this gets brought up within everything big that happens. So that's my number three. I, I, I'm same. Number two, Oceans. And I love this version of Oceans. Overall, might be my favorite version that I've heard ever. I think the Zurich version was pretty good as well, if I remember correctly. But I would have to go back and, and do some side-by-side work with it. But this version of Oceans absolutely deserves to be in the top three. And I think it's really, really tough to say no to saying no. This is the moment. This is the moment maybe of this European tour. This is the moment of this little Netherlands Holland run. You know, this is a classic show. And we have to throw the idea out there that this is one that certainly should get some recognition for a Hall of Fame candidacy. Will it get there? John, you go first. Yeah, I think we didn't even mention, too, you're just one release performance away from getting the entire 10 album here. True. Plus all the other stuff that you're getting. And the only other song that they had been playing consistently at the time that wasn't in the set was Wash. That's right. You know, there's a reason that we had to go through this song by song. Like, you just can't skip over any of these performances there, there are 13 so it makes it easier to do that true true but just kill i mean how many shows might have two of the greatest performances of a song in the same show not to mention saying no not to mention the alive solo that we talked about is just amazing not to mention porch all the stuff that that happened in porch like i got a feeling at the end there's a 10 out of fucking 10 my friend no disagreements from me. 10 out of 10. And it's important from so many levels, from the performance level and what they did in the show, and then from the after effects to how well the show was recorded and how well it translated to bootleg, and that this was one of the very, very early ones that that, that was out there. And getting that glimpse for from such a good show, like if they had this from... A different show on this tour that that was okay, but it was the best recorded version. I don't think that that version would be as revered. You know, I think it's because this was in excellent quality and because they did what they did makes this so special and makes this one to go back on. And, you know, we spent a lot of time, almost four years of the show, and we didn't do it. And we were waiting for the right moment. I always kind of thought in the back of my head, let's do a 30th anniversary thing, and here we are. And I think it's the that's the best thing that, that you can do for these years, shows. Man, I am old. We're all feeling it, you know? Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, 10 out of 10. 10 out of fucking 10. Legit and can't argue with any of that. It's It's a very important show. And it'll go back in December into the Hall of Fame. So... Watch out for that. It's a long time from now. Hopefully time slows down a little bit. We'll get to there later rather than sooner. But as we mentioned all episode, 
The next week, we're just continuing on this little run. The next show, obviously the next day, they decided to take a little break, but they come back. The next show is Utrecht. And if that name's a little bit familiar, I'm going to say another name right now that's the venue name that you definitely know, Tivoli. Might have seen that in a couple of places. Maybe. Maybe I have two shirts that say Tivoli on it. (laughs) Not on purpose. Both gifts. And, and... What's interesting is the one that I got from Wendy, who it was in the gift exchange from Secret Santa. Mm-hmm. She got me one that like legit was spray painted on like the actual T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one's up. I'm, I'm not going to bust that out too often because I'm afraid of getting it ruined in a wash or whatever. But my wife also got me a Tivoli shirt for Christmas. And that one is, you know, printed. That one's actual like... Mm-hmm shirt material and, and all that. So I got two Tivoli shirts. I am going to have to wear at least one on the day that we record this okay. or the day this comes getting, out. So kind of tr- trying to channel something, going to try to try to let it wash over. You're going to try to make some magic there happen. Magic is always happening here. My friend, <laughs> we don't need a t-shirt to make magic happen, but <laughs> we can just do it. It's a very good show. I think all these shows are worthy of the magic happening and all these shows are, are memorable for their own way. And once we get you tricked out of the way next week, the next one we'll do is Rotterdam. And once we get Rotterdam out of the way, then the next one we do is MTV unplugged. Again, I'm going to just mention this every week until we do it. We're still looking for somebody to come on the show. That was there that night. We have very, very, very few leads. We've tried to reach out to some people that we think might have been there that could help us out, but we have failed in that aspect. So we're asking you guys for a little bit of help on this. It's part of the mystery machine we always talk about. We want to find these people. There weren't a lot of people in this audience, and most of the people maybe didn't become Pearl Jam people. So we got to find somebody, want to talk to them, want to get their experience of being in the building because I think that's really going to make the show even more special than it's going to be. So we're out of time. We don't have 15 more minutes to go off on rants and sing Jane's addiction songs. And and I can, I can give a bass to my brother, but I think he'd be worse than Jason, which is funny because my brother's named Jason too. That is funny. Yeah. How about that? Mm -hmm. By the way, for people wondering, this is not Ed's brother that passed away tragically. Right. I believe that brother's name was Chris. Chris. Right. Yes. So just wanted for anybody that was was sort of thinking like, oh, that connection. No, this is a different brother. So we're out of time. We're going to say our goodbye spiel now. This may be the end. We're here not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, I miss you already. I miss you always. You want to support the show? Patreon's a way to do it. But if you're not a patron and just want to support the show in different ways, the best way to do it is through ratings on Apple and Spotify. A five-star rating would be terrific. It'll get more people to see us and get us more visible. And leave a comment for us on Apple. Let it, let people know why you like listening to the show. It just helps. Every little bit helps on this. Retweet some of our stuff. Share some of our stuff on Facebook. Like something on Instagram. It doesn't matter. Every little bit helps. That's all I got. We say goodbye, and for next week, in Utrecht, Tivoli. That's my little brother. I found you. I found you. I found you.
got a feeling I don't believe in For religion I got a feeling 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 That's my little brother.
First, first time me and my little brother ever...